Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a awesome conversation I got to have with a key member of many sort of key groups, actually like like several like key groups in Seattle punk history. He was in the living, 10-minute warning. And of course, Mother Love Bone, and uh, it is great to have him on the show. Greg Gilmore is is a legend, a Seattle music legend. More on Skinyard too. He played in Skinyard. I didn't get asked about any Skinyard stuff. Sorry, spoiler on that one. Uh, but first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedonapunkpodcast at gmail dot com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. I love you, buddy. And you will get the message to me. You can also uh, find uh, Tristan on Instagram at turnedonapunk as well as on Facebook, uh, which I believe is facebook.com slash turned out a punk. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that we do this podcast where we go really deep and nerdy on punk stuff. And then that's it. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that does do that. I very much appreciate it. And you can also uh, support it by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that and check out some of the stuff we put up there unseen. Otherwise episodes, um, some, a lot of footnotes and some other fun stuff that's up there as well. So check that out. And thank you once again, to everyone that does do that. Uh, and, uh, that is, uh, oh, and speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket and we'll help you cover the cost of doing this thing. And I, I really appreciate it. And then hopefully one day House of Vans will be back. Their, their concert series, which I, I love going to, and I will be able to go and do live podcasts there again. I cannot wait. I long for that day. But thank you very much to Vans for supporting this thing. All right. On to, oh, oh wait, wait, before we do that, uh, my band Fucked Up, the band I play in Fucked Up is going to go back on tour with a band called Faith No More. 
We're going to be doing some shows coming up in the beginning of September, middle of September. And then again, we'll be going out in the beginning of January, doing a 10 year anniversary of David Comes to Life tour. David Comes to Life was just recently reissued or it's going to be reissued on Matador Records. Head over there and find out when that thing's coming out. Or you can also uh, head over to Tank Crimes and check out our buddy Scotty. And he's doing Year of the Horse on vinyl, which is Fucked Up's hour and a half long song. And it is finally coming out on vinyl, and I cannot wait to get this thing. It looks awesome. And um, I'm saying that as someone who collects records, you know, not as someone who played in the band, you know, not as a selling feature. Because, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not your same aesthetic. Maybe you're like, yeah, that's, that's not what I like. So, you know, who knows? Uh, all right, on to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Greg Gilmore is here. Recently, The Living, his first band, which famously also featured Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, um, which also Greg Gilmore was nearly a member of as well. Anyway, this thing has finally come out. I, I remember hearing about this a long time ago and wanted to hear this thing, and here we are. It is called 1982. It is available now on... Loose Groove Records, which is run by one of the members of Green River. Um, and I, I think he went on to do other bands after that as well. Um, but yeah, no, this thing looks amazing. So pick it up from Loose Groove Records. Okay, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Greg Gilmore on Turned Out of Punk. Excellent. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you. Well, I spared you from this before we got on air, but I'm a fan of many projects you have been involved with. And I think also that 10 minute warning 98 record, I think that is super underrated. That was a pivotal record for me. Oh, really? That's, that's cool. I don't, um, I have no idea how, oh, back not, not. I have the expectation. I think I've, I've thought nobody has that. I, nobody knows that record. Like <laughs> I don't need. I don't know if I even have a copy of it myself. No, it's never been pressed Actually. on vinyl. It only it only had that one time CD pressing. Yeah, yeah. And as far as I know, nobody knows about it. But you do. That's how did you, how did you come to know about it? Well, I remember there was like a fanzine called Muddle and they did an interview, uh, I believe with Duff when it came out and just talking about the band. And I, I picked it up because it was on Sub Pop. But, it, you know, it was a weird period for Sub Pop, obviously, that like kind of like late 90s like period. And it just felt like, yeah, it just never got the attention. Like if that had come out on, you know, like a man's ruin or something like it, it really does feel like it would be very much at home with kind of the, some of the stoner rock stuff and the desert rock stuff that was kicking off around that same time too. Like Actually, yeah. Such yeah. a cool I record. I hadn't thought of that. But, um, you know, partially, I think Sub Pop might have felt a little hobbled by... Um, uh, I don't remember that I cared so much. I was probably felt similar to Duff, but in his case, it was a bigger deal and he was adamant that he did not want them to be leveraging his status or celebrity from GNR uh, to sell that record and so um, without that suddenly it's kind of 
just another record by a band that's not touring, you know, so. Well, we're going to get to 10 minute warning, but I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Greg, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I think my first encounter was it with it was, um, had to be 1980 in the fall. I moved to Seattle to go to school. Uh, an old high school friend of mine had come up for a weekend to hang out. And we were just wandering around downtown, kind of near the waterfront. And uh, it was dark and empty down there one night. And in the distance, somewhere, the music was reverberating from vaguely this direction. And so we wandered in that direction and ended up at a um, I don't know what this building might have been an apartment building at one time or business even it it, uh, it was seemed it was basically empty yet seemed maybe recently renovated and the door was open and we went in and followed the stairs up tracking that sound and uh ended up in a um i mean it wasn't it was a room like the size of a studio apartment or a office maybe and there was a band in the corner and a handful of people hanging out and they were clearly reveling <laughs> on some substance they were very welcoming this band was I just had never seen anything like that. And there they were right there. And it was amazing. And I'm pretty sure that was a band called the Refusers, which I would come to know much later. Oh, yeah. Kind of a legendary band. Yeah. Yeah. Are they outside of Seattle? They're known? Well, they definitely come up with, I've talked to some, you know, I'm, I'm very much, you know, kind of obsessed with the the Seattle punk scene and kind of how it transitions and grows. And so, you know, I think Mark Arm brought him up when he was on the show. I believe they're oh, on yeah. the Seattle Syndrome compilation, right? Uh, I think so, actually. Yeah, that's right. Okay, absolutely. So wh what was your kind of like, what were you into prior to that? Like what music were you into, you know, back in high school? Um... King Crimson, Deep Purple, uh, uh, Brian Eno. Um, There's a record I really liked a lot. It's a live record, uh, sort of a project called 801. It was kind of a film as an era thing, yet Eno figured pretty large in it. And they did a, a live record called 801 Live appropriately where um that did feature you know quite a bit um simon phillips playing drums bill mccormick they just super cool record and that was uh that was a big one for me that was in constant rotation in my cassette deck and my dots and pickup had you already started playing music by that point too Oh yeah, I started playing drums at um, uh, I got a snare drum at a 
11, I oh, guess, wow. and okay. a drum set at 12. Mm. And <clears throat> right away, um, yeah, just playing to two records with headphones all the time. That's basically how I learned to play. And what was the first concert you went to? Uh, Bad Company in the Seattle Center Coliseum venue now called the Arena or the Key Arena. Oh, that's awesome. Actually, I don't know if it's still a key. Anyway, you know, this uh, corporate sponsorship took over. <laughs> it was the Key Arena. It might still be. I don't even know. I still call it the Coliseum. That yeah. was left over from the uh, World's Fair 1962. And so I guess like, where were you kind of getting into this music? Like, obviously this stuff's not necessarily being played on the radio. I guess Deep Purple is to a, a little bit and, Deep, and Bad Company is a little bit, but like certainly not a lot of that sort of heavy Eno stuff. Yeah. Um, I had a buddy in uh, school, junior high, high school, who was kind of ahead of his years. Um, same age as me, but... Uh, like an avid reader of Rolling Stone and deep fan of the Beatles. Um, he, in junior high, I guess, turned me on to uh, record, sh uh, record shopping. And um, there was a, there was a little shop in Tacoma in particular that he frequented and I started going there with him and just immediately was completely sucked in. Mm -hmm. And uh, that shop had a lot of you. In fact, I think all the records there were, were secondhand. And um, that's where I, I just found a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, often, frequently, based just on the cover, uh, records that are became monumental to me they're still favorites to this day you know, yeah 40, it's amazing oh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there uh just 40 some years later you know it's crazy yeah it's and, amazing and, oh go on sorry oh no i'm sorry you go ahead i was just i was just gonna say it's amazing how you had to judge books by their covers when it comes to albums because you know there's we live in such a, a different world now where there's like you can sample this stuff like reviews matter to that point because that was your only way of getting informed before you had to like put your money where your mouth was when it came to that record. Yeah. Yeah. Such a different time. Right. Um, yeah. Fortunately the covers were real good. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's wild. I still remember the experience of finding some of those things. Um, King Crimson, USA, live record, uh, Roxy Music, Viva, another live record. Um, those were two I definitely, you know, pulled them out of the rack. And, huh, what's this? And uh, just immediately, wow, just opened doors and became a cornerstone of my development. You know, I think I still have the copy, the vinyl copy of 
another green world that I still have today came, I think, from that store. A lot of stuff you're bringing up is live records and, you know, in your first punk exposure is also live. Like, is it something about the live energy that draws you to it? Because, you know, I find I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I find uh, live records are, are a lot more difficult for me to get into. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. You know, I have, uh, it's funny. It's a thing I, I, I have thought about yet. I don't think about it that much that seems like a bit of a contradiction but i have for sure i have noticed just what you did that um a lot of these records I, i'll name also the when it comes to deep purple uh you know made in japan is huge to me and um well there's another you know, kind of an oddity, but I, I'm pretty sure this also came from shopping at that little place in Tacoma. Uh, Tangerine Dream made a live record called Encore. And it wasn't at the time that I thought I was looking for live records, but I did after I stepped away from what I was listening to, and, you know, had to notice, wow, all these records that I really dig are live records and yes there is something i mean for sure i um you know there's some steely dan records i really dig and those are far from the sound of a, a typical live record but uh um there is there's uh i enjoy us just a certain amount not total but a certain amount of um chaos in music i guess yeah you know not yeah not always but it's it is a it is a thing that that i really enjoy and i like playing that way you know i have enjoyed having bands that could would play like that with a little bit of abandon <clears throat> um Makes me think also of the uh, the first uh, Tin Machine record has, though it's a studio recording, they played there's a lot of, I think, one and two take. They, they had a, a one or two take policy when they're recording it, and they were clearly just going for it. And <laughs> that I like that, the sound and feel of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's it's there's also, you know, I, you know, I have to make note of the fact that like, you know, many of the bands you're in are notorious for being like some of the best live bands of their respective eras. Like you always hear that about 10 Minute Warning. You definitely hear that about Mother Love Bone. You know, like they were those are like live acts as well that like, you know, the records are one thing, but everyone, you know, according to every account is like you had to see it live to really understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I guess I never uh, again. I've <laughs> it's just somehow built in. I don't think a lot about it, but then if you ask, start to ask me about it, I realize I guess I do in some way think about it. And, yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah, I would not. I could not be in, or it's it's not fun for me to be in a band that doesn't have 
some of that element of okay this is live now this is this is this is for real mm -hmm. uh you know go for it so where did you go from that first refuser show like walking into that show like where did you kind of how did you kind of pursue it from there um you know it just it did affect me I don't remember that I um, pursued it really. I was still, oh man, what was happening? Uh, you know, I was still into what I was into, whatever that was at the time. I, mean, I guess among other things, that handful of stuff I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I <clears throat> did not really, uh, well, um, kind of slowly, I shared a house with uh, three other guys and to varying degrees, everybody was into music. And so some of that stuff, mostly uh, local Seattle bands, some of those records started um, showing up there but it, it wasn't until i started playing with the living that i was really in an environment where <clears throat> uh where that music was you know mm -hmm. um and then and meeting not just playing it and being around other bands doing it but uh making friends in that crowd that you know, had a lot to turn me on to a lot of stuff. Well, how did you meet those guys? Were you like going to other shows around that time? You know, I was not going to, I was not going out to shows during that time. There, there, they were, <clears throat> bands were definitely playing out but I was not plugged into that scene yet so much. Um, and then uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, but bands like that were not playing in, um, there were no club gigs for original music, essentially. The, there were no clubs supporting that. So those shows happened in more improvised spaces or circumstance. Um, and maybe to really get, uh, to really be aware of what's happening, you kind of had to be a little more involved in the, in the community than I was yet then. Mm -hmm. So, um, nah, it wasn't until I just, I, uh, I answered an ad. We, there used to be a, uh, um, a music and general arts and entertainment magazine here called the uh, the Rocket uh, was a paper, um, and that had a uh, a classified ad section, and <clears throat> a lot of musicians uh, wanted ads found there, and that's that's how I joined the Living. I 
I assume it was John Conti had posted the ad and probably answered the phone when I called. But then I loaded up my gear and made my way out to um, a neighborhood I was not familiar with, knocked on the door, stepped back down off the porch a couple steps, and uh, Todd Fleischman, who's a rather imposing figure, <laughs> opened the door <laughs> with blue hair, and uh, that was it. That's where it all began, everything in Seattle started for me when I started playing with those guys. And so what, where did it kind of go for that? Like, you know, like how, like how soon into that were you guys playing shows? Like, um, you know, like, and how soon into that did you guys kind of find that sound? Cause I, I love the, you know, I only heard a couple of the songs so far, but I'm super excited because it's such a legendary recording. Like I remember my friend telling me about it 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, like this sort of legendary other Seattle band that no one's ever heard and it's and it's killer and then you know finally hearing the stuff like I, I you know I just kind of wonder how long into it did you find that sound um I think it happened uh pretty quick like immediately we were just playing like that the way I recall um and it had to have been <clears throat> sometime in January that I started playing with them I just a couple days ago dug up an old uh, flyer for a show we did with the Silly Killers that was for uh, February 13th. So we were gigging, you know, within a couple few weeks, anyway, months. I don't know exact. I don't know exactly when that was that I went over there to, for the first time, but you know, middle of January. <laughs> Who were your influences on, you know, that approach to drumming that you did? Because obviously, you know, it's it's a lot different than some of the other bands you've mentioned that you were into at that time. Yeah. Uh, nobody, really. I just brought, so I just dragged those, <laughs> those other influences with me. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, don't recall listening to anything anything like that for insider ideas you know yeah yeah so what are your memories of those first shows that you played like you know obviously you'd been to that one punk show but i imagine as the scene's kind of picking up um shows are getting a little more wild uh they they did but um um i don't know how much of that happened during the time of the living um i was working this out in a conversation with kurt block recently who had some uh some calendar documentation and we figured that the bands the last show was in july so from uh january to july there's uh, six or seven months, <laughs> yeah. and and then I don't think we were, you know, it couldn't have been more than a couple few weeks after that last show that that we called it quits. Um, the shows I hardly remember. I hardly remember specifics. 
from the shows other than just really enjoying playing, you know, it was just really in it. Um, I remember playing with DOA. A lot of shows at that time, it would be in a, there were a couple of private small art galleries down in, uh, down around Pioneer Square, the older part of the town of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, we played in, in a couple of those. In fact, our, that last show was in one of those. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't, I have definitely of my other bands, I have more, a few more specific memories from gigs, but, uh, not much from the living. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, it's such a short period of time. Like it's amazing how years from now like in certain circles these like little periods and little blips in, in you know your life are are take on these sort of legend yeah yeah for sure it's really that and this idea or the phenomenon where um you know as we age uh, look back on um you know there are another a number of these significant milestone moments in my life, uh, most of them music related. And <clears throat> if I, uh, if I start to pick apart a timeline and try to f- and figure out when and where these things happened, I'm just stunned to realize that, you know, a handful of these things might've happened within just a few months. You know, and now, now it seems that, you know, it takes, it takes years for years. that yeah. much shit to happen. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing to think about like all the change that happens in like youth culture between the years like 1977 and like 1983 in terms of like punk music, metal, rap music, uh, techno, like, it's just like, and now you look at things and it takes like years for something like like something mm-hmm. like that to happen here it's happening in spans of months oh yeah what, yeah what did you make of chuck biscuits as a drummer you mentioned doa he was great he was great yeah uh the whole band they were so fun yeah really they, great guys they are definitely a band that also has that reputation like whereas you know once again as good as the records are to see them live during that era they are they're the band that everyone seems to come on the show and talk about. And it, and like right across North America. Yeah. Yeah. They were really, really cool. And they were sort of, uh, we idolized them, you know, certainly looked up to them. Um, Yeah. Like I definitely hear that in the vocals. I see, I hear, uh, I hear like a a Joey Keithley kind of influence coming across. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what happened after the band broke up? Like, where did you kind of go musically for a while? Right after The Living? Yes. I, um, real soon after, uh, Duff went and started playing drums with a band called The Farts. And 
I don't know how long it was. It, uh, not, it couldn't have been more than some weeks or just a few short months. Uh, they were making some changes and Duff went to play guitar and they invited me to come play drums. And, um, and at the same time, the name had been changed to 10 minute warning. So they had just right at that moment, uh, as with the band that had been the farts, they did some recording and changed the name and changed the lineup. So there is one, and I believe that's, that recording was released as a cassette. So out there somewhere, there is a 10-minute warning cassette that um, is actually the, is or more like the previous, the farts lineup. So it wasn't the same, it wasn't the same 10-minute warning that, um, well, you know, that it was just some weeks later anyway. Because there's also that there's that double LP. Well, I think it's like an LP and a 12 inch that came right. out last year that I think has like yeah. a lot of other stuff on it that I believe has some stuff that you were on as well. Um, yeah. And it feels like, yeah, like it's just like there, it's a band that once again, people talk about as being sort of the unrealized band from that era and sort of like the bridge band between what was coming and what had been. Right. Yeah, it kind of was. It um, it was a sort of a fusion of um, uh, you know punk rock and what came to be known as metal. I guess when did where did that come from? That's metal as a genre or a term. When did that first appear? I think it's like one of those things that goes back to like the early seventies where it just starts showing up in, in music press, like much like punk, you know, goes back to the sixties when it starts showing up in, in music press. But I don't know, like when it must be like black Sabbath, right? Like that would have been when people really started like codifying it a little bit. And then certainly with new wave of British heavy metal and, and stuff that would happen, you know, in the wake of punk, I think you, that's when you really see like, the define like okay metal's this thing and people look a certain way right hmm. yeah yeah motorhead comes up a lot on this show it seems as a band that was a a, a gateway band to they were doing that yeah. yeah yeah they were doing that for sure um so anyway, i don't remember exactly where we were but that was uh that's what tim and warning was doing Mm -hmm. I, I, in fact, um, talking to Jack and Dino about this once, and I was finding it curious that 10 Minute Warning was considered a, a punk band. And I just said I'd, I'd always thought of it as a, as a hard rock band that played real fast. Really? To me, if yeah, for yeah. that's what I that's what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of the band. Uh, you guys played a living song though, right? Like on that record, um, you guys do uh, like the "Live by the Gun." I think on on that twelve on the thing that came out. Uh, is it on there? 
Yeah, like on the, I think it's on the end of the LP. Uh, as I say, I've only let, heard this on the internet. I just ordered one myself because I had no idea this thing existed until I was researching this interview. And I'm like, prior to this, I only had that the stuff on the compilation and some bootleg tapes that someone made me back in, you know, the early 2000s. So very happy to see it finally get a proper release. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it is good to see that out. And um, I think it looks good too. Oh, it looks fantastic. Oh, and it's funny. <laughs> Just, it, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. It's it's funny because you, you brought up earlier with the living, much to the same way. It's This is called The Lost Months because it's from October 1982 to May 1983. Yeah, yeah, just right afterwards. Right? Yeah, and it, it's a span of, you know, months. Once again, like, like you're saying, it's just these little blips that, take on these sort of like huge legends like this band 10 minute warning it's like it, it, it truly is like a you know obviously not a super group because everyone in the band goes on to do other stuff but like you look at this band and where you all would wind up it's like wow what a fascinating band to kind of look at to study seattle like underground music yeah it's funny i um not funny i don't know it's having been in it and just at the time uh, you know, things like, it's just what you're doing. You don't mm -hmm. really know what it is. And, um, uh, I, yeah, and he, uh, so you just still always have that relationship to it. And then you just, you have to learn from others later what it might have actually meant. Yeah. Well, it's, it's impossible to contextualize something you know yourself when you're in it like you're saying like you know it's just a span of months in your in, in, a, in a very long life but it's just it's amazing like you know doing this show i realized that these things are just like you know pebbles not to get too uh, you know uh, cliche about it but these are like pebbles in the water that people are dropping and it's just amazing to see where these reverberations go years later like where these bands that never even put out official records are still being talked about yes so many <laughs> uh forgotten gems maybe but then it, they just become part of the fabric of something that happened and if they had all made high profile records then then it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be what it was i guess yeah, right absolutely a hundred percent part yeah, of the process yeah exactly and it's just i think part of the fun is the what could have been about it it's like the uh, what if scenarios like okay well, what if you know what if 10 minute warning does get going like how does that change you know not just seattle music history but like all music history you know like it, it's a it's an interesting thing to kind of you know interesting sort of a mind game to play yeah yeah it is um <laughs> I had not, I hadn't really thought so much about that. <clears throat> Were there like, there was talk of you guys signing to a label, right? And like trying to do 10 minute warning, like in, in stuff I've read, like that was the plan, right? Like 10 minute warning was going to be, you know, like a quote unquote real band in the touring sense. Right. I, I have a vague recollection. Yes. Of, um, 
you know, every musician harbors <clears throat> some of their back of their mind. They have idea of um, making records and touring and large venues, large crowds. Um, but the um, what it means to pull it together to work toward that is the challenge. And I I do remember, I guess, having a feeling that, um, you know, we were all basically expressing that. And, um, but <clears throat> I don't, I don't remember any focused, mm, yeah, any, any real focused efforts to, to make it happen. Maybe others were paying more attention to that. I don't it it does seem yeah. like though. It, sorry, Timmy K. Off there. Oh uh, no! I was just going to say. May have. <clears throat> I'm guessing more, or the the most out of all of this. <clears throat> Maybe um, Blaine, and as evidenced by what he did later. You know, Blaine was yeah. probably the most together of uh, of all of us with regard to um, uh, you know having a plan, making a plan, taking action, knowing what to do, or having an idea where to aim. Anyway, yeah. Well, the parts, yeah, were pretty together as far as, you know, like a super young band like that. Like they had records, they, they you know, I, 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 they played out a little bit. And so it feels like, yeah, like there was certainly some wherewithal in that band very early on. Yeah. Yeah. And given what I know, well, actually, I think Steve Hoffman was probably <clears throat> probably I had a lot to do with that. But um, yeah, so, uh, I have no no explanation as to why, but Tim and Warning was less mm, less developed in that way. There was more, and I I would be guilty of that for sure. You know, for <clears throat> um, I was. Uh, probably more just focused on playing you know i just just play just play and really would not have been the one to to come to to figure out how to how to how to get beyond that well you, you mentioned focus on playing like you know the that's the thing about this band that you know i brought up earlier is the, the live reputation and the photos of this band like it just feels like it was an explosive live band in the same way that I guess DOA is said to have been, you know, like a, a band that, you know, you just had to be there to see it. Yeah. Um, uh, we went for it for sure. And that's kind of, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It wasn't, um, we didn't talk about it a lot. We didn't, uh, we didn't dress up for it or work on our, moves we just 
went out and went for it. That that was in many of my bands. For me, that's been a a thing is to just push to kind of to the brink, you know, just just trying to squeeze as much out of the moment as he can. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe that would be my primary contribution to some of those situations. I, I see a lot of flyers with you guys in Poison Idea, and it feels like they're another band that would have been, you know, like not necessarily doing the exact same thing stylistically, but like certainly a band that would have been on kind of that same sort of wavelength and also a band that would have been pushing it to the brink live. Yeah. I only remember that we played with them once. Do you think you've seen uh, posters from for more than one show? I think I've seen some, but I might be during the transitional farts period mm-hmm. because I think they right. say like former members of farts. There's there's two, I think, excuse me, two or three pictured in the uh, liner notes that reissue that came out. Yeah. Could have been. I only, I only remember playing um, in Portland with them once. But it, whatever, it was great. And yeah, they were uh, similarly focused, maybe. Yeah. Um, I read it uh, once again. I think it's in Everybody Loves Our Town, or maybe it's Grunge Is Dead. Duff talks about. At a certain point, 10-minute warning just kind of fell apart, and there was a real – drugs just kind of overtook the scene, and there was almost like a sense that you just had to get out of that place, and, and you and him moved to L.A., and I was just kind of wondering, what was your kind of sense of that time period? I um, – yeah, I thought uh, recently, since all this stuff has been coming up again, about um, – my uh, my perspective on the drug thing I I wasn't I wasn't involved in it and I was not aware of it which seems weird now but I was um, man I just, I just was really naive in some way about that. Uh, partially, I wondered if Duff was more aware of it because he <clears throat> he had a, a deeper history with all of these people in this scene, so he knew them or of them from further back, and so he could see changes. And maybe i don't know if that's a reasonable explanation or not but in my case i i just sort of i just came to play i don't know how it, it i didn't and i was not aware until much later of what was going on around me mm. um, it makes sense you hear that a lot from people like about the violence in los angeles that was going on too where there's a lot of people that just, you know, you know, it wasn't something they really noticed as much. And it feels like other people, like it was something that really plagued their experience with it. You know, it feels like, like you're saying, it's, I guess your relationship with the people that are kind of assumed with it at the time 
has a lot to do with it and like how you knew these people, but like, you're, you, you know, you came to play. Yeah. I, I, I mean, now it just seems so, uh, it's too simple of an answer, but, um, it was, I, I, oh, yeah, I won't go into details and names, but as that situation evolved, later after duff and david left there there were even now i realize there were even more drugs it was worse and i had no idea at the time mm -hmm. just wow and you know now when i think about it it just seems ridiculous oh wow how naive can you be or maybe I prefer to think of it as innocence. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's well. You, you weren't looking for it, right? Like that's a, I think the big thing. Right. It was. It was very. It was really far from my reality. That was never a thing I looked to or for. Yeah. So, and I guess I guess that's part of how those things work, right? Is it's not. Um, Unless you know it by personal experience, then it can just be something that doesn't, you can't imagine it being, you know, in your, in your inner circle. So it's, so it's just not, it's just basically, it's not there as far as you're concerned mm -hmm. or as far as you can tell. So then you moved down to Los Angeles, right? Like after 10 minute warning. It was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Duff, Duff and David left and I don't know when I'm guessing it was springtime ish or summer and Tim and Warren continued for a little bit. And then yeah, Duff came to me one day and suggested we should move to LA and pretty soon, I guess I thought that was, that was a good idea. Mm -hmm. So in the fall of 84, we did. Uh oh, you still there? Oh, yeah. No, no, sorry. Oh. I, I thought you were going to either say something else. I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. I was like waiting with bated breath for what you're going to say next. The... <laughs> <laughs> what were your impressions of Los Angeles once you got there? Mm. The first thing I realized, um, seems that Duff might have seen this too, was, <laughs> was, oh, wow, you don't have to come here to do it. There's something, and it seemed clear, uh, right, pretty quickly that um, it wasn't, it wasn't really a magic place where um you know you just get in the water and suddenly you're swimming and and it's happening uh it's just it actually was just another place yeah and uh as it went for me it was it was not a yeah it wasn't i just wasn't really connecting 
with it or what was happening there or what I was doing there. Um, I played with a few bands, checked out a few situations and one or two things and you know, that's kind of a thing, but nothing, nothing came together or really felt that compelling. Um, otherwise, most of the people I was meeting that I wanted to hang out with were not even musicians. And it pretty soon felt for me like I just, I wasn't, wasn't the place to be. Mm -hmm. It like, uh, I think it's once again, in one of those, you know, Seattle history books they talk about or music history books, they talk about, you know, uh, Duff moving down there. And I think Duff even says he moved down there to do a band. Like he wanted to be in a band professionally, like not necessarily make it as a rock star, but just make it in a band. So that's his job. Was that your goal when you moved down there too? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What were some of the other yeah. bands you kind of played with when you were down there? Um, man, random situations. I don't I don't remember that they even had names. There was one, one band that had been a band and they were called Animal Dance. And that was one, it's like kind of the most promising afternoon I had. And there, I think their situation was their rhythm section had been uh, Fishbone and, oh, now I do not remember the bass player's name from Fishbone. Oh, they, they they put out records, Animal Dance, right? I think maybe they did uh, seven inch at some point. I'm not sure. I just know. I think I I, I just know about it from reading about it. But yeah, it's like some sort of like pre Fishbone type thing, and it was like a, a very jazz kind of funk rocky kind of like you know like punk rock kind of thing too, though, right? Uh, that could have been. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that's amazing. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. So I went there. I went to play with them one afternoon. And of course, Fish wasn't there, but the bass player whose name escapes me at the moment, we played. And um, I dug it. It was, it was cool. I don't remember much detail about it. Everybody seemed kind of into it. But then maybe they were just at that kind of transition point where they they just they just ended up letting it go mm -hmm. but i lost touch with them anyway um yeah that was the one kind of the one thing that that out of all that time that i thought that's that was cool that would have been a thing i would have stuck around for was it like that, you sorry you didn't even cut you off no nah, go ahead were you, were you playing with like all different types of bands when you were down there? Were like, cause it's just, you know, it's obviously it's Los Angeles. So there's like a million different little scenes kind of popping off all at once. Right. Like, were you playing with like punk bands and metal bands when you're down there too? Um, not, not so much. Um, you know, it's just answering ads, uh, from the, I think the recycler. Uh, and, you know, so there's a lot of situations that were not even fully formed or, mm -hmm. um, I definitely, I did not 
play out with any band there in the time I was there. Did you take in a lot of the stuff that was happening? Like what, what was your take on like sort of that sunset strip metal stuff that was beginning to kind of kick off at that point? I was not totally relating to that, you know, mm-hmm. it was just, it was LA and you're just trying to wandering around, wandering around, trying to get my bearings maybe, and you know, come to terms with or figure out what I was even doing there. Maybe that was part of my thing. There's a lot of emphasis on the business there and always had a hard time with that. I mean, and that's, um, you know, that's an old, old, uh, age old struggle with, uh, for me, but, and it'd be a, a simple contrast as to why I was ultimately more comfortable in Seattle because until much, not until much later, uh, or it was much later that that kind of business awareness uh, came to Seattle. It was still back to that old thing of let's just play music. Yeah, I can't picture too many more diametrically opposed scenes at that time yeah. from reading about them as Los Angeles and Seattle in, in like sort of yeah. 84, 85. Yeah. And that maybe that's the the simplest, clearest way to kind of describe my experience there. That it just not uh, not that there's anything wrong with it. It just I didn't know how to or was not motivated or interested in that so much. And and for sure. You know, it's not that that's the only thing that's happening there. That's there's a lot of a lot of great stuff there that's um, other focused otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I just wasn't big city. I wasn't connecting with that or that scene. And so, yeah, it didn't take long. I, mean, I was only there a few months. Well, it really feels. Oh, sorry, didn't we get off? No, no, that was it. It really feels like kind of punk is almost like a feeder system into that scene at that time. Like a lot of those bands are crossing over, and and a lot of like sort of fixtures of the punk scene were kind of like becoming part of that sort of like metal scene. Like it felt like it was almost like a pipeline. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. I. I can't really, I can't say much about that. I didn't, um, <laughs> I was not paying that much attention to that, I guess. There was not a lot, not a lot in that that I was really listening that closely to or following, maybe. So when you moved back to Seattle, like what did you uh, do as far as music when you first got back there? Um, not very much for a while, like a mm, couple years. I've, I was still playing, but um, not. I uh, don't didn't have any regular band things. Kind of flirted with some situations with old friends, 
Um, uh, yeah, so I was not real involved in the in the live scene anyway. And then I, um, so that that would have been in the uh, spring or so of '85 that I came back, and in the summer of '87 I left with a one-way ticket to Bangkok and traveled around Southeast Asia for a few months until uh, Christmas. Actually came back on Christmas. Pretty soon ran into Stone, who we were familiar with each other. We didn't really know each other very well. He invited me down to play and I did. And then that was, that became, that was Mother Love Bones, which would have been probably January of uh, 88. It, uh, I read that those guys considered you the best musician on the scene and that you were almost like recruited to join that band. Like when they, like you were approached because like they knew you were just that player. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about it's one that. Of the, it's in, I think it's in yeah. uh, Grunge is Dead. I forget who says uh, it, but I think maybe it? Jeff says it or something, but it was uh, that you, they, they wanted you because you were the, uh, the best musician on the scene. I think is the actual quote. Well, that's mighty high praise. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah, know how I expect I, you to react to that. But <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I don't think it's quite true. But uh, <laughs> well, actually, and, playing and with playing well. with playing those playing with those guys did a lot for my playing. We recorded so much, and nothing will kick your ass and force you to pull it together like you know having to listen to yourself recorded what what was what was your kind of like because you know it's always said that mother love bone was going to be the next band um that was going to kind of take off like did you kind of feel that did you want that because it seems like you know you've always from what you've kind of said been you know kind of resistant to that sort of success on those terms um well yeah, I wanted that. I wasn't necessarily resistant to success. Uh, maybe it's more that I did not know really how to pursue it other than just by uh, by <laughs> bowling over the world with my awesome, the awesomeness of my music, you know. I don't <laughs> <laughs> which might be again a bit naive but uh, there's a lot to be said for that yeah so um yeah it wasn't so much that i was that i you know i didn't i wanted to be or i was certainly not opposed to that you know to success um and uh i Guess I thought that Mother Love Bone was aimed in that direction. Yeah, for sure. And that was, that was fine. It did, it caught that. I don't think I'm the only person this happens to, but it, it did cause me, a, a, you know, some, at times, some anxiety. And in fact, <clears throat> I was, I guess, 
it, it um, it, uh, just, it could be, it was a challenge for me sometimes dealing with the business, the business of the business. And I was <laughs> possibly difficult at times, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it wasn't that I didn't want the band to be successful. I just, um, it just took a lot for me to just personally reconcile or figure out how to navigate the world. Uh, certainly much better at it now than, than, than I, but, uh, well, you still, also still, still might be a little bit challenging for me. Yeah. Well, you had been to LA, right? Like you had seen what was to come um, in terms of like what, you know, like the music biz side of making music. Like I think probably in a way that the other guys maybe hadn't at that point. Yeah. But I, um, uh, just so many thoughts come rushing. Can't sort them all out. It, um, Uh, <clears throat> I had seen it and I was I that's interesting I hadn't really considered this in this way before maybe I I was I was determined that it could uh, at least uh, uh, as far as I personally am concerned and that's would by definition have some effect on my band. Uh, I was pretty determined and confident that I could do it my way. Hmm. And, uh, and that would have been the, the source of, of some of the friction that I've had in general with the business, I guess that, uh, part of, I think, I think it's possible to grow up and, and have that determination and more graciously navigate the business of the business. Um, but, uh, yes, I did see what it could be. And I was determined that we could, that I, and by definition, the band around me could have that kind of success and not be and still be uh real for lack of a better word yes yeah. yeah not to accuse others of you know not being real everybody's doing what they can but it just i had my own personal sense of uh you know possibly overblown <laughs> uh, confidence. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did that answer your? <laughs> no, it does. Because I, 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 I definitely can understand that. You know, based on just you know, just judging completely on the music stuff we've talked about so far. But like, the stuff you you're into and the stuff that's influential on you is is very uncompromising 
music, like certainly commercially uncompromising music in like, you know, like you can't ever accuse Robert Fripp of, of, you know, not finding success (laughs) on his own terms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, in a more simple way, I sometimes, I, I think of my, in a, in a, obviously in a very vague general way, um, as being more of a jazz players sort of uh, <clears throat> bent when it comes to the actual, the music making part of, of music making. So where did you kind of like in terms of the band, like how did it happen that you got signed to to Polydor or Polygram like so quickly and they gave you your own imprint, I think, right? Like was it there was there already hype when the band formed around the band? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so many things right there. Uh for one, <laughs> I need help straightening this out. Is it Polygram is the parent company and oh. Polydor? Was a subsidiary? Is that correct? I think so. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get it straight right now. I'm like, I'm frantically googling to try and get the, the or the yeah. corporate structure of this thing together. Yeah, I head. think that's. I think that's right because this yeah. just came up in a conversation recently, and then I think just yesterday I was, <laughs> I was on Wikipedia trying to figure what the hell is the deal. <laughs> um, and then there's Mercury, which then I realized I was. I had gone back to these to the old records to look and and the uh the re-release where they repackaged everything together after andy died that was released um that has a mercury label on it now mm-hmm. is that a sub- subsidiary of polygram i think also? that's when they started i think that's when they started buying each other up like that right like and, oh, and, one and big yeah many many becoming one yes yeah yeah and now it's just one big streaming service so it, yes. it also, it also became just... one thing. <laughs> um i'm sorry what was the rest of well just how did that? it happen so it seems oh, like yes. it happened really quickly with that band yes it did that's and that i'll skip a ahead a little bit to this other thing which had sort of, uh, uh, man, for me, it was a, a just how appropriate to have just been talking about how I have my struggle with the with the business. And then to tell you the story of sitting there with Jeff, just the two of us in New York, sitting down for an interview. And it was through a question by the interviewer that I learned that uh, Stardog Records was had been an indie label, and Mother Lebon had signed with them, and Polygram came along, and they wanted the band so bad that they bought the whole of Stardog Records. Complete, completely fabricated, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine I just. In that moment, I thought, well, if I let on or if I contradict this, what kind of trouble am I making for a lot of other people? So, you know, just not in my head, I guess. I don't. And, and 
<laughs> doubly strange. Uh, I just told this story to somebody else the other day, and their first question was, well, then did you, uh, did Jeff know, or did you guys talk about it? And then I had to say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> no, we didn't talk about it that I, as I recall, I, uh, so yeah, I don't even know if, far as far as I know, everybody else knew that that was happening. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> no, um, no one hipped you to what was going on on that one. Yeah, uh, so let's see. So, so that kind of answers the yeah, and then some about the imprint. Um, it did happen really quick. Uh, we did some re we recorded a lot just demos there was a little eight track studio called reciprocal where a whole lot of sub pop stuff eventually came from and kind of where jack and dino mm -hmm. became jack and dino and we would go there and demo whatever we had going on um you know it could be fully formed ideas or half an idea and i think from the very the very first session we did there we came out feeling like you know just listening to what we had just done and thinking wow this is this is a thing um and i think that it it might not have been the first from the first session but i think it was uh jeff sent that to a contact that he had made in la uh, through traveling with Green River and that person since had started working with Geffen and before you know it, we had a demo deal with Geffen and went to a bigger studio in town eventually yeah that yeah that the timeline I cannot say it for sure but I'm whether it was actually from that first tape or not, but whatever, it was, it was pretty early on some demo stuff we'd done at reciprocal and Jeff sent it to LA and it ends up in at Geffen and they send us some money to do a, some recording. And the, the, actually the version of stargazer that ended up on Apple, is that where it yep. appeared first that came from uh, that's the session, the demo deal that we did with Geffen. Wow. That's awesome. So like, so when, when shine comes out, that's like, that's even before that. So that's, you know, really shortly thereafter, like it must, it must've been, it must've felt very strange for it to all of a sudden be clicking like that. Having been in like a lot of bands, like, as you said, where you're kind of searching for what happens next. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It all happened really quickly. Um, and we're just kind of going with it. You know, there's nothing else you can do. Also, um, yeah, I don't know what kind of a difference it may have made to me that I had just come from um, being out of the country for five months or so. Yeah. In a, in a series of strange places kind of head clearing nice thing to come home to <laughs> but yes the uh 
um, the, the, the demo thing with Geffen, which right away turned into a series of uh, schmooze dinners with a few labels, you know, coming to town and taking us out to dinner and going down there then to meet, going to LA to meet some people and um, uh, part of the, the visits they were making up here, one of my favorites was uh, Tom Wally came and after dinner, I think he took us out for ice cream, which <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. Let's go. I, I don't know. Was it Interscope? Maybe it was <laughs> anyway. Let's go with Tom because <laughs> the ice cream was a good move. But I guess I was the only one that felt so strongly about the ice cream and we did it. But that's all right. It worked out. It, it's funny because also it, Rick Klotz did all the design work for your guys and he's become like a streetwear legend. He's like one of the innovators of streetwear clothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of his first credits that he has too is doing. Um, is doing shine oh is it really yeah i think that's yeah. the same year he starts the clothing company too so it really is like it's kind of like a, a seminal release for not just music but also fashion launched some other careers yes <laughs> exactly yeah yeah uh well i have kept you greg forever and i could punish you we've, we've you know we still got years to cover would you come back at some point down the line for a part two i would yeah yeah i would uh, this has been a, a lot of fun, and anytime you want to come here and nerd out about music, please know that the door is always open. All right. All right. I'll remember. Thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Greg will be back at some point down the line. I had a lot of fun with that one. That's one of my favorite episodes. We had a, a fun conversation right there. Um, and yeah, pick up that living 1982 on loose groove records. It's, it looks sick. It looks sick. What a, you know, what a time we live in when all these sort of legendary recordings are finally seeing the light of day. So, um, that's great. Okay. On to the next episode in our give the drummer some weekend coming up in a, in a few short days from the band, Jane's addiction from the band porno for pyros from the band infectious grooves from the band uh um oh well for me the most germane to me uh, perhaps of any record ever put out from the incredible all-star project by mike watt ball hog or tugboat um and also he was in what's the other band i'm blanking on right now methods of mayhem as well <laughs> he played on the methods of mayhem record too he's got incredible stories Stephen perkins is on the show i we talk about it on the show but one of the most unbelievable discographies out there a very fun conversation he's a super nice yeah it was a super nice dude we have a fun time uh but that is coming out on a couple of days a couple of days from now uh on the next episode all right, that is it. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. And and just, man, be kind. Like, these aren't political issues. These are like basic human rights things, you know, and we all are better served when everyone 
is is equal and everyone's treated fairly and everyone has the freedom just to live their lives. And then we can start arguing over, you know, what streets should be one way and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that, 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 that's politics. This, this is just human rights shit. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need that shit. You're just like, ah, geez, just take them from me. Take them. Um, and, uh, now that I said the depressing stuff, go there and make your own culture because you know, that helps your mental health stuff. And that can be anything from like just drawing a picture to making a zine, making a comic book, making a video game, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do, flex that creative muscle, do something. It'll make you feel better. Uh, and try meditation too, potentially, because I didn't believe in that shit either. And I've been trying it and it really helps me in certain situations. I really do find it, um, you know, I don't know. I didn't believe in it. I'm even maybe starting to call it practice, my practice. Anyway, maybe I'm not there yet, um, but try it. What's the worst going to happen? Uh, and that's it. Stay safe. Get your shot. And we should all go back to hanging out and playing shows and, you know. Uh, oh, I, I guess this is like kind of like an Easter egg because I, I think, uh, <laughs> I'll probably talk about it on the Stephen Perkin episode at the end, but I'm going to be at Camp Dino, Camp Fuzz next week. I've got approval to go, got my shots and, you know, double vaxxed and got my mask and I got ready to travel, you know, and so I hope to see uh, people there. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening and I will see you on the next episode. But stay safe. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.